After they ran the uh, freeway through here, that really wiped us all out. That wiped everything out. That just that just uh, dismembered the whole community, and uh, people moved all in different directions, lost contact with people. There was never the cohesiveness again. That was Melvin Carter Sr., the grandfather of St. Paul's first black mayor, Melvin Carter III. Melvin Sr. was born and raised in Rondo, and he lived through the construction of Interstate 94 that tore through the center of the neighborhood. We know that Rondo was fundamentally changed by I-94, but what we don't talk about enough is why Rondo was chosen. And in the face of permanent change, how did the sons and daughters of Rondo find ways to keep going and stay committed to the community they loved so much? I'm Brant Williams. And I'm Jonathan Rabb. And this is Untangled Roots. What would it feel like to have your community taken away from you? How would it feel to have no say in it? For the men, women, and children who were forced out of Rondo, it was a life-changing event. Teresina Willow Carter Freelix was one of those children who were forced to leave her home. She's also the daughter of Melvin Carter Sr. and the aunt of Mayor Melvin Carter. She described what it was like to go through this and try to comprehend it as a child. Yeah, it was it was scary. And, you know, not just because we had the, there was the sense that the adults were that something happened was going on that was out of even the parents control and that they just had to do the best they can to try to um, to make it work for them. I remember my mom uh, trying to make things easier for us. All by telling us, um, I guess she was pregnant at the time, but telling us we were going to get a new baby after we moved and uh, see what else did she. Oh, we in Ron, the house we lived in was to me reminded me of a big old Victorian house, and um, we rented the upstairs out, but we were never allowed to go into the basement, and so naturally that became a point of curiosity for the kids. So one of the promises that we got is that when we did move, my father would finally take that skeleton key and open that door so we can go see what the basement looked like. But yeah, there was a feeling of being afraid of the kids on the street. I can remember some of the kids talking about the end of the world and the the lat and uh, what it was supposed to be like uh, with the trumpets and um, in in the um, in the in the Bible and so forth. And so we sort of understood in a way that this was not just a move, but th- this was a, a, a an event. This was a sort of a lifetime event, and uh, we were all I think as kids we were trying to figure out how best to um, how best to figure out what the move meant and what our lives would be like once it was over, once we had left each other. Because that was all we knew was, was Rondo. The justification behind what happened to Rondo was this term we've heard before called urban renewal. And just, just hearing that word, I mean, what is what do you think people think that means when they hear urban renewal? I mean, I think that those two words are put together to sound like you're making something like better and nicer and you're raising the property value and um, 
new shiny things. That that's what it sounds like to me. Right. Um, but it often is not that. Yes. Actually, I can't I can't think of a time when urban renewal has actually like urban renewal is often not for the people living in the place that is going to get renewed. Right. Um, it's a selling point that you use for the people who live around that area um, to get them to back whatever they're about to do in this specific place. Right. So if you're talking about neighborhoods like Rondo, um, you know, we were talking about it like they were saying that the houses were a little torn up or a little right. like, not taken care of. And the idea was, hey, hey, city, hey, state, we're going to build this highway here. We're going to renew this whole area. Kind of means clean up. Yeah, that there's a blight there. Yeah. That they need to take care of. But this is something that was used around the country. So we looked up a couple definitions of urban renewal. And according to dictionary.com, it's defined as the redevelopment of areas within a large city, typically involving the clearance of slums. And according to Merriam-Webster, the definition is a construction program to replace or restore substandard buildings in an urban area. These definitions instantly designate an area targeted for urban renewal as a bad place. And from everything we know about Rondo, that simply wasn't true. But the neighborhood and its Black residents suffered due to that misperception. Historian Kate Cavett explained that the challenge created by I-94 couldn't stop the people of the Rondo community from supporting each other. But it did create new challenges. A freeway might have gone through, but it became an inconvenience. It did not... From my perspective, it did not destroy a community. It was a huge inconvenience. It was a huge sadness. It was a, something to grieve significantly. But these were resilient people. These were vibrant people. They were connected to each other, and they were committed to the growth of their young people, and their young people needed to be in community. There was always these debates about the use of this type of um, government resource and flexing government muscle and authority to take property, you know, through eminent domain to 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 take, you know, to, to build these projects. In the sense, from the critics of these projects, it was always that this is not for the benefit of uh, regular everyday folks who may be living there. They're talking about building new housing and but like very expensive stuff, right? So who's this benefiting? I think black people, um, just in general now, 2022, understand that when cities start talking about urban renewal, you're on the first wave of, of, of gentrification coming through. We're going to clean up your area. We're going to make your schools better. We're going to build this nice transportation system through through your neighborhood. We kind of understand through because of like experience through the decades that like they're not really talking to us and that we may be the thing that need to or we may be the target of the renewal my question is this is it even urban renewal if you're just building a highway through something 
Maybe at the time, that's all they knew about. Like <laughs> They figured, <laughs> no, well, like, let's start with the freeway. Like, there aren't going to be any jobs. Like, yeah, I don't know. Like, they weren't bringing maybe jobs, jobs to Rondo. No jobs were there. You're destroying businesses. Like, I don't think, when, when I think urban renewal, I'm not thinking of that. Well, they're um, bringing like, construction jobs for f- people building the highways, but who... Who are those people who are building? Who are those people in those? Yeah, in those positions. But also, like, just it's it's urban renewal for the city, right? But not for the people in this specific neighborhood. In 1956, when the Federal Aid Highway Act took effect, most government officials argued that the planned route through Rondo was the most efficient way to handle a construction. But there were some that pointed out that the highway would significantly harm Rondo and should be moved to follow the path already created for the railroad system. Those opinions were overruled, and the city, state, and federal government would band together to strip rights, resources, and wealth from the Rondo community. When your Black residents are already considered second class, it doesn't take much to justify taking things away from them. The residents of Rondo were forced to watch government officials make sweeping changes that affected them forever, and they could do nothing to stop it. Willow Carter Freelix discussed the difficulty of being a Black family forced to leave Rondo without the freedom to choose where they would live next. She spoke with Kate Cavett in 2004 for the Rondo History Project. We didn't understand it in terms of that, that we were being made to move, just that our parents were sort of, that we had to move, that we just didn't have a choice, and we were just trying to do the best we could as a family to um, figure out what to do, next, the move to make next, how to buy property, where we wanted to go, how far we could go. I can remember my parents... Um, going on excursions to look at houses and uh, coming back home a lot of times sort of down because they didn't find what they were looking for. And also we um, had to honor the the color barriers where we couldn't, we couldn't move past Lexington. And so um, we had to, there were certain confines that we had to move within too. And I think that was for us is as scary as moving off of Rondo. Did they explain to you about the color lines or just you overheard things about it? I overheard things. I, I always oldest. I always listen to my mother and father talk, but they never explained that to us. We just kind of like knew that there was something going on that they didn't say. And of course, that had more power than what they did say. But yeah, uh, I can remember because we looked at one house that was, um, it was a black pass. Lexington, and it was um, across the street from Central High School, which they thought would be a good area for us to live in. Well, we went to that house and looked around, and I remember the and, and my parents were we were sitting outside. All the us, the kids, and my parents were sitting outside. I know my parents were like uh, talking, like, oh, "Well, if we get this, if we even you know get considered," and I thought, "Well, you know, to me, it just felt funny. I wouldn't have known how to articulate it, but it just felt funny." And uh, we went in, and the people were nice. They showed us the house, and, and we liked it. Kids, we decided that we liked that house. But um, come to find out later on, we couldn't move over. Uh, uh, we couldn't even move a block past Lexington because Lexington was the color boundary. We couldn't go past Le- move past Lexington. Where did your parents finally settle? Well, we, they finally found a home for us on um, 
Rondo, I mean, sorry, on uh, Aurora, 1026 Aurora, which is like Aurora in Oxford. And it was close to St. Peter Claver School, and it would have been also close to Central High School where I would be go later on. So they were both in walking distance. So where did people go after they got basically run out of, you know, their yeah. homes were taken? They were displaced, right? Yeah. And you're a black person living in the Rondo community. A highway gets, you know, planned through your neighborhood. You have to move. But we know that it's hard to move within Minnesota because there's redlining. There are, um, if not at the time, there were the effects of racial covenants. Right. So you couldn't just pick up and say, oh, there's cheap houses in this part of South Minneapolis. I'm going to move there. No, that was hard to do. Right. Um, you really had to decide, where where am I going to move? And there's another hindrance to also moving. And again, through talking with the, the, the author of um, the book called uh, History of White Exclusion of African-Americans and Other People of Color in Minnesota, who said basically... There's another reason folks can just move where they wanted to because they were actually physically driven out of neighborhoods where white people did not want them. Oh, yeah. So they would not even you go look at a house somewhere, but folks let you know that you're not going to be able to live there because there was enough of a you know resistance from the white people in those, in those neighborhoods who were like going, no, you're not moving here. Yeah. And especially like some of the middle class neighborhoods, right? Like you're not... Yeah. You're not just a middle-class, working class. You're not just going to be able to move over there and right. get a house. All right. Folks are looking and at even, property values. They're looking at it's like, no, 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 no. And We're even if you this. can, right, if you look at some of the videos of the effect on just, like, black children at the time who had to move to some of these neighborhoods and deal with the bullying and, and threats... And feeling that they were just like totally not welcome in their communities like mm-hmm. that. As a parent, you think about those things. I have to imagine. Uh, and, and, you know, and to their credit, I mean, there was, and again, like the, this author that I spoke to, Chad Montre, he mentioned, I mean, obviously there were pockets where there were white people who were welcoming and yeah, they did their best to try to welcome. Yeah. But there weren't enough of them to offset the types of um, resistance that they were met by by other parent groups and other, you know, who, who basically bonded together to say, no, we're not going to have an integrated neighborhood here. Yeah. It's Minnesota. So there's yeah. a lot of like, yeah, I accept you, but also like, I'd rather not have you going to school with my kids. And, you know, Rondo had that both of those things going right it was it was there was middle class but there was also folks who were more working class yeah who were living in these neighborhoods and there were and it wasn't completely black but it was uh probably more integrated neighborhood than you'd probably found in anywhere in the metro area at the time yeah if you like just because the neighborhood got you know hit by this highway doesn't mean like the people in the neighborhood no longer could find community right or build community they were Fully functioning human beings. They probably moved somewhere else. They created a community. But there was this beautiful thing that that was affected. We've heard several times that the Rondo community stayed connected post-I-94 construction. Its churches and social clubs were still active, and many are to this day. In the decades following the I-94 construction, residents would come together not only to maintain the bonds of community, but to take action 
particularly around issues like civil rights. It's well known that places like the Sterling Club worked with civic leaders to address civil rights issues. And often churches like Pilgrim Baptist were central to political activism. Now, the Carter family was deeply involved in this activist work. Melvin Carter Sr. shared his memories of his wife, Billy Carter, and her tireless work as an activist. What about the um, uh, when news, when people started to hear about some of the civil rights demonstrations that were happening um, down south um, in the 50s and the early 60s? I mean, what was the sense of, of folks in the black community here? I mean, did people really think that it applied to them here? Or? A lot of them did not. I'll be very frank with you. A lot of them did not. I could see it. My wife, who, bless her soul, she was right on top of everything. She woke me up and woke a lot of people up to the fact that that uh, there's something going on down south that we ought to be involved in and just don't stand on the sidelines and pretend it's not happening to you. Because uh, although you're in a little safe little cocoon here, uh, you, you know, it involves you too. So she first got me to thinking politically about what's going on, and, and, we, and she was very, she was very uh, active in the community. She's what you call an activist. And she got a lot of things going here, but that's a whole other story. And uh, Billy Carter was her name, and she, uh, she's well known for uh, for pushing people, getting them out to vote. And Billy Carter wasn't the only activist in the family. Mayor Carter described growing up and learning to help the community. I was raised to be an independent thinker. Uh, I was raised to be creative. I was raised to be a problem solver. I was raised to take responsibility, to find to find ways to take responsibility while others were finding ways to, you know, make excuses. Um, and I was, uh, my, my friends look back and say that I was trained for leadership from day one, but it never felt like a, a electoral kind of track. Sure. It just felt like you, you dive in and you lead. Right. Um, and I guess my path led this way. Kate Cavett spoke earlier of the way the Rondo community members committed to the growth of their young people. Mayor Carter was definitely a beneficiary of this support. And we talked to him about the influence his elders played in his decision to transform from a community volunteer to a politician. You know, speaking of the community's role in helping you kind of form your um kind of lead you on your path, that, that, that you saw that the way to serve your community was through leadership. And, and if you saw something that needed to be changed, that you didn't wait for somebody else to do it. That's right. You decided, well, why can't I? And did you get a sense that the you were building a, that you needed to have this community support around you when you decided to take that to the next level of actually running for office? I mean, did you physically reach out to some of the elders, Nathaniel Kalik and others, to say, you know, I'm, I've decided to, to actually go to City Hall. Uh, did you need that kind of support? Did you reach out to them? You know, yes, and I, it almost happened in the opposite order. Uh, we were part of this. I was working for this nonprofit organization called God Voice God Power, uh, which was situated uh, in that basement of St. Peter Claver Church, uh, which is, of course, an institution in the Rondo neighborhood and the Rondo community. Of course, my mother's the first um, African-American person to serve in a county board uh, in the state of Minnesota, which I often tell folks, uh, you know, is, is you know, we're looking forward to the day where we, we're, we're not celebrating those kinds of firsts anymore. Uh, but, you know, certainly very proud of her. 
As Mayor Carter briefly mentioned, his mother, Tony Carter, became the first black person to serve on a county board in the state of Minnesota. She's currently a county commissioner on the Ramsey County Board. We were already sort of immersed in, you know, I just grew up. I was always immersed in community. I was working for God Voice, God Power. And it was during the time when um, we were uh, building a plan for light rail. And that plan sort of was built to hopscotch our neighborhood. Our neighborhood uh, right along University Avenue was uh, one of the most transit-dependent neighborhoods in the state. And the level of bus ridership that we had there um, was part of the justification to say we we need federal funds to put a train there. But then the plan was to hopscotch in our neighborhood. Folks would always say, the engineers and experts would always say they expected people to walk a quarter of a mile to a half mile to get to a station. Now, I was asked, I used to ask, uh, are these August miles or are these January miles? Right. And nobody ever answered that question. Right. And a lot of, and this is, of course, right adjacent to the freeway where the freeway uprooted our, you know, community. And there were a number of us who looked up and said, this isn't going to work for us. Like, we absolutely have to have the stations that we need. So, in you know, we're out here arguing that this train is going to bring jobs and economic right. benefit and opportunity and, you know, connectivity. And it literally won't even pick us up. And so it just looked like a real injustice about to occur. And uh, a, a whole group of us kind of got together and just said, we're not going to let that happen. And that's the movement that sort of uh, pushed me into running for city council. So uh, in a way, the answer is no. Uh, it wasn't like, let me go talk to some of these elders, uh, because it more felt as though many of those elders were sort of sending me into the space. To understand the answer, you have to realize that the heart of Rondo wasn't a physical place. It was a personal, individual, and sometimes spiritual connection between each person that called Rondo home. It was a feeling that was held by the residents that were displaced and the residents that were left with a broken neighborhood. They could have easily given up, but that's not what living in Rondo taught them. Living in Rondo taught residents to work together, to support one another, and to provide for themselves when no one else would. Thank you so much for listening. Untangled Roots is a production of NPR News and part of our North Star Journey Project. Untangled Roots would not have been possible without the work of many people, including executive producer Sarah Glover, producers Twyla Dang and Brant Williams, hosts Brant Williams and Jonathan Rabb, sound design and mixing Alex Simpson, researcher Anne Harrington, with original music by Greg Grease. Excerpts taken from the Teresina Carter Freelix interview from the Rondo Oral History Project were used by permission from the Minnesota Historical Society. You can learn more about Untangled Roots, the North Star Journey Project, and find additional resources by going to the NPR News website at nprnews.org. Untangled Roots was made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.